Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. Amen. We're in James 4. I'm going to read it real quick, 4 through 10. Uh, it's, it starts this way. It's a very soft, comforting scripture. Um, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's a nice, lighthearted text. I'm going to try and use this thing that Ryan's been used. He's done a really good job. I don't, I don't know if I can, like, see here. Oops, wait. Let's, uh... Oh, yeah, be sure to thank Ryan. That's on my, that's on my uh, to-do list. Can we get the lights on in here as well, Jeff? Sorry. Um, I just want to make sure. Oh, yeah, I'm going to thank Ryan for this scripture. Sorry. Okay, enough jokes. Seriously, though, um, uh, I don't know how to use that thing, and I'll probably mess it up, so that part's not a joke. But either way, I'm excited to be up here. I'm humbled. It's been really, really wonderful to see Ryan take us through James and then Brian and Jack as well helping in that. And so it's, it's an honor to be up here and try and dig into a very, very difficult text. Um, the church specifically, I think, as a whole, all of us feel this tension of uh, the pressure kind of to, to operate and look a specific way. You see it from, from, the, from social media, you see it from other individuals, or maybe even just within the church, looking at other people, kind of judging them on how they are. We have this, these expectations that will, will morally perform, or that will be legally correct, or that will walk out in, the, in our life this, this faith in such a way that people can look at it and go, God must be real, because look at that person. You know, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 48. He says, he says you therefore must be perfect, or complete, or mature, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so even Jesus is telling us, like, the, the, the expectation is maturity and, and completeness and, and perfection. And yet all of us, if we're honest, feel the tension in that. Most all of us uh, probably feel a lot like Paul does in Romans 7, where he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want but the evil I do, want, do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Oops, my bad. Sorry. I told you I didn't know how to run this thing. I don't even know where I am. All right, you're going to have to help me, Jeff. Sorry. So he goes on and says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And so this is, this is how we feel. We, we, we see the be perfect and complete, and yet we can utter with Paul, man, I keep doing the stuff that I don't want to do. Why am I not operating this way? And so it'd be really easy to look at James, as, as Ryan has told us not to, and say, okay, well, here's the list of how to do things and just operate out, and we'll be great. We'll be, everything will be perfect. But that's not, that's not the truth of who we are. That's not what, what James is trying to say. And so we find ourselves in Ryan's little outline. We're in the exclamation point between pursue peace right now. That's where we are. And so I went the wrong way because there we go. There we go. Um, so we find ourselves there. So James 4 is this really interesting interjection that comes back to the idea of chapter 1, I think verse 6 or so, this idea of being perfect and complete. It stops right in the middle of, of all of these things that the people that James is writing to are doing, where they're, they're divisive and their, their tongues are, are out of control fire and they're, they're treating people with partiality and they're, they're showing all kinds of sinfulness in place. And then James just kind of stops, pauses right here, 4 through 10, and, and hits them with this really wonderful, nice, air, light, light, you adulterous people. It's important for us to remember, again, like we've, we've already learned in this, that, that James is writing to a predominant Jewish Christian people. They would have understood the language. And this whole section is just full of Old Testament language. And so that's where we find ourselves. And I think in this text today is actually where we begin to understand how to live with the tension of be perfect, be complete, yet wretched man or woman that I am, that we all so badly feel all the time. And I think we get that out of this. It's, again... It's through a really um, difficult set of scripture. So I'm going to, uh, verses 4 through 6 of James, um, or sorry, 4 and 5, uh, most scholars believe like they're the hardest ones to translate in English. In fact, there's three really great ways to translate chapter or verses 4 and 5 that could work linguistically. So people are like, well, I don't know where it is. And if you go and look through Bible versions, you'll see a million different versions. Um, I will save you the nerding out time that I did, okay? So I'll just give you a, a, a little bit here. Scholars, um, they're all over the board. The issues with these, first, these two verses is, is, one is the Old Testament scripture that James is quoting, we don't, we don't have an exact replica of. The, the reference to term spirit could be the spirit breathed into us that God does at creation, or it could be the Holy Spirit. The, uh, the meaning of the object of the verb yearn, we, we don't know whether that, that is God's spirit yearning, our yearning, or God yearning for us. It could be translated all three ways. And the meaning of the term jealousy. Is it God's jealousy for us? And it it's also can be used in a way that's more negative, sinfully, like envious when it's talking about us. And so all of that is confusing in this, these first two verses. And I, I share that not to, to make you guys question the Bible, but I would encourage you to go study it and, and work on it. But most all scholars agree that although the reading of this section can, can change, um, the point and the context overwhelmingly is something along the lines of that we can know from the context and a lot of other really smart people, <laughs> that the best way to understand that this is that God's desire is that his people be holy and undeservedly, or unreservedly his, devoted to him, and he operates with a divine jealousy that is nothing like our broken, sinful envy um, for the life both he has breathed into us at creation and the indwelling Holy Spirit that is ours in the surrender to Jesus alone. So this is what this text is talking about. He's saying, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a way with which we are to operate that is true to who we already are as God's children, as God's people. And God has a, a jealousy, a desire for us to live in light of that, in light of what is true of us already in Jesus Christ. Um, one scholar says it this way, like, our God is a consuming fire, and his demand for our exclusive allegiance may seem terrifying, 
But our God is also merciful, gracious, all-loving, and willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. So that which God commands of us, he supplies the means for us to actually achieve and, and walk in those. So it's not a hurry up and work it. Work it out on yourself. So don't hear that in today. But this, this abrupt and harsh language that James uses, you adulterous people, it speaks to the prophets of the Old Testament. This is all over in the Old Testament. You see this where we, we understand that God has, Yahweh has lined himself up as the, the husband to the bride, which is his people. Israel in the Old Testament now, the church in the New, new Covenant. Like we see that God is, is our husband and we are his bride. And that's, that's the idea of adulterous people. So when he utters this, every single good Jewish Christian would go, oh, this is, this is what Jeremiah says. This is what Hosea says. This is what Isaiah talks about. We see it all over in Scripture about this. And usually, if not always, it's always used in the context of the people of God turning from God and living in another way contrary to his ways. In this context, James uses the idea that we become friends of the world or friends of God. And so that's, that's kind of the, the context of what he's, he's talking about, this little interjection in the middle. It's a call to be complete and perfect, but then he's going to kind of show us how to do it. First off, friendship biblically is not like friendship that we have on, on Facebook, where we have Facebook friends, right? Friendship biblically was like a, it was in the Hellenistic rule, world, it was like a sharing of all things, unity of spiritual and physical, like a very deep intimacy. And so when God talks about friendship, or when James talks about friendship here, he's not talking about like your Facebook friend that you are a friend today, and then like unclick, like unfriended. Like that's not what he's talking about there. Um, what, it, what he's actually talking about is this idea that, that when you are in relationship with something, you'll notice, like Romans 12, 2 tells us, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The idea that, that who you spend time with, the old adage, who you spend time with will affect the way you operate. My 14-year-old daughter is using the word literally, completely incorrect, all the time. Like, I don't know if anyone else's teenage girls are doing that, but like, she'll be like, I'm literally going to die. It's like, actually, no, you're, you're not going to die. Like, it'll be okay. Like, that's not literal, okay? But it's, it's she had some friends over, and they were all saying it. It's like, it was like the word, of the, so it's like, you end up, you end up looking like that, and that's the idea of friendship, is that if you spend enough time around each other, you spend enough time in this way, you start getting conformed to that. And what James is pushing on is right now that, that, that the way with which some of these, these readers of James are, are living, it's contrary to who they are in God already. It looks more like a friend of the world. Their partiality, their, their divisiveness, those things that they're doing, the, the way with which they're speaking, it, it seems more conformed to the world than it is of God. And so he's saying this shouldn't be. In fact, when he says the world, it's not just the world of like, oh, the created world. The world here is is the whole system of humanity. It's institutions, structures, values, and morals as organized without God. And so he's saying, look, you can't look like this if this is who you are. If you are in Christ, you look like Christ, not like this. And many of us have had those friendships where it's like, why do I keep saying that? Why do I do that? It's like, because you're in it. You're influenced by it. My kids, my young kids, my kindergartner specifically has this issue where... Um, his friends only want him to have one friend, you know? So he's like, well, I can't play with you today at recess because I'm playing with so-and-so at recess. And they said that they can't do it. That's essentially what God's saying. It's like, I don't want you to have any other friends but me. Again, this isn't, we can't have life and re- relationship in the world. It's that our deep, intimate, spiritual, and physical connection is to God. It's to be singular-minded, not double 
minded, which he'll talk about later on. John says the same thing in 1 John this way. He says it. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father of God will abide forever, will remain forever. So he's saying, stop. Stop being friends with the world. You are a bride of of, of God. You are the church. So the Gentile Christians now are understanding the idea of being grafted in that's talked about in Romans, this idea that, that we are the church. We're, we have been bought with a price. We, the, we have a husband. When we operate contrary to that, we are committing, in essence, in effect, adultery. So James's push here is really like, like record-scratching, kind of like, whoa, like what happened here? But he's not saying they're not brothers and sisters. He's not saying, oh, you're not followers of Jesus here. He's saying there's two people that are brothers and sisters. He's saying you're, you're operating in a way that isn't true to who you are. You're going outside the marriage covenant for things that only happen inside the marriage covenant. And that's how he's trying to get their attention. And then verse 6 does this. It's this really short sentence that if you don't pay attention to, it gets kind of blocked or missed out because of uh, the God opposes the proud verse that we're all so familiar with. But verse six starts this way. It says, but he gives more grace. That that can actually be translated. He gives greater grace. Now, Now hear this. This is so important for us to hear. He gives greater grace. He just called them, you adulterous people. Your, your friendship with the world is, is putting you at enmity with God. But his grace is greater. And that's important for us to see. His grace is greater. And then he's going to build on that. In verse 7, he, well, he says this, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 7 and verse 10, he's going to give us kind of bookends on what this is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to deal with this. And my hope would be that all of us would leave with a little bit more settled feeling on this idea of be perfect and complete, yet wretched man or woman am I. And that's what I think James is digging into here. So verse 6, he says he gives greater grace. So he supplies the grace that is ours because of who he is. He supplies the grace that is needed to counter the the way with which we live as adulterous people. Um, James's quote is is Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble in verse 6. It's it's God's gift of su- sustaining grace is enjoyed only by those willingly to admit their need and to accept this grace. The proud, on the other hand, meet only resistance from God. And this theme is all over the scriptures, Old Testament and New. The proud are always going to see and experience resistance because the very culmination, the kind of the, the, the to start at the go in following Jesus is, is, is a humbling of ourselves, recognizing that we cannot do it. We are not enough. We never will be enough. There's nothing, no striving will ever get there. It takes a posture of humility, a recognition of all that we are is in opposition to God, and therefore all we want is Him. That, that's, a, that's a posture of humility. You will not receive the grace that you need when you stand in pride, in opposition to that. So he goes on and says, okay, so this is very crucial, verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So the therefore here, we got to remember why it's therefore. So he's saying, look, in light of all of these things, probably including one through, one through four, not just four and six, but in light of all of these things, here's what I'm going to tell you to do, you adulterous people, my brothers and sisters. Submit yourselves to God. 
Submit yourselves to God. Surrender to him. Submit yourselves to God, therefore, and resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. So it's a, it's a negative, positive thing here, or positive, negative. He's saying, look, submit to God, and then resist the devil. And then if you resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. He will run from you. This, this idea of resist isn't like, no, go away. It's, it's a military term standing against, in opposition to. So how do we resist the devil? How do we do this? By submitting to God. It, by, we, we stand against Satan by aligning our hearts and minds with the truth of what God has revealed in his word. We resist Satan by living obedience to all that God commands. This, resisting the devil isn't a matter of like, okay, let's go fight him. It's a matter of staying and, and walking and drawing near closer to God and letting him take care of it. That's what this is. It's not, a, it's not a, oh, if I, I gotta stand in the middle and, and try and let enough God in and keep this out. It's like, no, just draw near to God and, and Satan will flee you is what the promise is here. And that word flee is like, run! Not like a mosey away. It's a very extreme word. We resist Satan when we worship and adore Christ more than anything else Satan brings to us or before us. When we see the things that the world offers and we realize they pale in comparison to that which we have already in Jesus, that's a form of resisting, standing against the enemy. We resist him when we love God above all else, when we prize Jesus as our supreme treasure. Now, to submit to God, this is one of those words that I feel like most people in the world today feel like is a four-letter word. People don't wake up and go like, how can I submit today? Like, that's not usually the first thing we think of. In fact, very, very often, most of us are trying to figure out ways around submission. Just, just so you guys know, the Bible speaks a lot about this. Government, marriage, kids, bosses. Like It speaks about submission everywhere. But ultimately, if you have an aversion to submission, the one verse I like to go to for my own heart when I'm struggling with this is the command that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The very baseline of our, of our submission <laughs> begins out of awe, wonder, enamored feeling of who Jesus is. That's, that's, that's what he's, he's talking about. So, so, so when it says submit to God, he's saying place yourself under his lordship. And many of you are like, well, yeah, I've, I've done that. I've submitted my life to Jesus. I'm, I'm following him and I'm, I'm under his lordship. But submitting doesn't just, it's not just there. It's, it's, a, it's to acknowledge that his written word, the Bible, is, is his authority that we are to follow. We're not supposed to look and go, yeah, I don't like that. Let's not apply that. It's to, it's to believe that all it says we are to obey it means that we make the glory and honor and praise of God the highest aim or goal of all that we do. That's what it means to submit. Paul, when he's talking about submission in 1 Corinthians 10, and he talks about like whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. What he's saying is like, look, to submit to God means that your entire life has been bought. You are not your own. And everything you do, your work, your school, your parenting, the way you spend your money, everything you do is meant to be done in a way that would bring glory to God because you are his, not your own. And when we submit ourselves to God, the enemy flees because God is way more powerful than the enemy's plans or schemes. God has already won that victory through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. And then in verses seven or verses eight on, he kind of tells us how to do this. And, and what isn't said in this verse, which isn't said in the scripture, but I think is very true to the way it is, is this, is this theme of repentance. And this is how I think we solve the, 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 the juxtaposition we find ourselves in of wretched man and woman that I am versus be perfect and complete in God. 
we are already in Christ. Just to be really clear, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, given him as your Lord and Savior, you have been drawn into him, you are already perfect and complete in him, lacking nothing. Wait, what about, what about the wretched man that I am? Because we are still battling until the completion of his, the new heavens and the new earth. We will continue to battle our flesh. So this is already who you are. So the, the question is then, how do we walk and live in this while we still feel this so presently? Every day, in fact, many of us probably feel today, it's like I already got like seven or eight things that I'm already feeling wretched about today. The way I drove, the way I talked to my kids, my thought process alone. Goodness, guys, if you put everything I thought up on the screen, you'd want nothing to do with me. But that's not who I am. I am complete in Christ. And that's what James is is pushing on this tension. So he says, look, this is what you need to do. Verse 8, he says, then draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, it's important for us to, to understand this. Draw near, most often in the scripture, is usually talking about the idea of worshiping God. But the same word is used here of us drawing near and God drawing near to us, so God would not turn and worship us. So most people believe this is closer to Daniel and Hosea 12, 6, like Daniel 6, 2, where, where he's talking about the idea of turning or coming near to in repentance, drawing near in d- doing away with that which isn't of God. A turning from is what this is probably more true to. And so draw near to God is a posturing of the heart in which we repent of our sins. Cry out to God for his sustaining strength and help and seek him. Seek the joy of his love. Uh, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews is a, a very thick book in, in Hebrews 10, 22. Um, he's really making a point. The author is making a point that you don't have to be in the temple to be near to God. But he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our, yep, sorry, thank you, Jeff, you're on it. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he's not saying we need to clean ourselves and then draw near. He's saying, no, we can draw near with confidence because we've already been cleaned by the work of Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. So, so what James is saying, if you tie it in with Hebrews and, and, and the rest of Scripture, what James is saying, that which you are doing that, that makes you look like a friend of the world isn't who you are in Christ. So live true to who you are as one who has already been cleansed, who's already been made pure, not by any of your own doing, but by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That's what he's telling us to do. So when he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, again, every good Jewish Christian in that day would go, oh, this is speaking of the Old Testament stuff. The, the way with which we are to ceremonially cleanse ourselves so that we can worship God. That's not how James is using it here. What James is saying here is saying, look, cleanse your hands. Deal with the outward behavior, but then purify your heart. Bring your heart of posture repentance. Draw it in as a, as a posture of repentance. He's saying, he's, his mind is saying, repent is both in terms of external behavior and internal attitude. This is what he's telling us to do. He's not saying, clean yourselves up so that you can worship God. He's saying, no, rid yourself of the things that aren't even who you are because you are God's. Just live in who you are. And to do that, that takes a, what he goes into, it takes us not being double-minded. Ryan's talked brilliantly about this already, the single-mindedness that God wants from us. I'd encourage you to go back to listen to it. It's this idea that we are His, we are not ours. Our life is about Him and nothing else. So when he says you double-minded, like what he's saying is he's saying, look, you're, 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 by, by being enticed by the world and giving yourself friendship there, you're living a double-minded life. You're living not true to who you are. 
This isn't what God has done. This isn't how he has made you. This isn't, this isn't who you are in Christ. So his call to clean us up and, and to do these things isn't a, okay, go wash your hands and purify yourselves. Jesus says, if you have, I, you'll have no part in me if I do not cleanse you, to his disciples. That cleansing comes in a surrendered life to Jesus Christ. But, like the Apostle Paul, John, who says, if you say you're without sin, you just sin by lying. And every single one of us in this room, we recognize that there's still a battle going on in our flesh. The same thing that Paul was talking about in Romans. Like, man, I, I want to do this, but I, I can't. I, my heart is here, but I, I wrestle with this and go back and forth. And what James is saying is, yeah, that's normal. You're going to probably deal with this the rest of your life. So here's how you do it. Submit, here's how you get rid of this. Or how, here's how you live this. Submit yourself to God. Surrender yourself to him. Cleanse yourself. Purify. Acknowledge that which is in you that is not of him and say, I want nothing to do with it, God. Forgive me for my, my work within the way I've done money or the way I've, I've fought with this person or the way I've div- caused division or the way I've, I've gossiped or the way I've... Any of these things that you continue to get angry at yourself for. God, forgive me. And not because he hasn't already forgiven you. He's already forgiven you on the cross. It's because it takes humility to acknowledge that which you have done is wrong and surrender yourself to that which who is your Lord and King. He's saying just operate true to who you are. To not repent as a follower of Jesus is not who you are in Christ. To minimize, to blame, to, to shorthand your, your failures and, and try and make them small, that James goes on and talks about that. This is where he goes into the like, man, no more joy and, and get rid of mourning and all this stuff. Like, what, what is he doing again? He's speaking to what they, all of these individuals would have understood in this day is this is what prophets would say. And what is he basically saying? At the end of the day, James is not against joy. In chapter one, he told us to have joy in trials. No, what James is saying is he's saying, stop making light of your sin. Stop pretending that which Jesus did on the cross was a small thing. You should be grieved by your sinfulness. Not excuse it away while everyone else does it. Or I'm just not old enough. Well, because I'm not out of college or high school yet, I won't have to do that yet. Or because, I'm, because, I'm, because he did this or she did that. That should never be language for those in Christ. Our language should be, I'm grieved by operating in a way that is not true to who I already am in you, God. It brings sorrow because if any of you have lived longer than a day, you've learned and experienced the pain and sorrow and grief that comes from your sin or someone else's sin. And James is saying, look, that, that isn't who you are. Brothers and sisters, that is not who you are. You are a child of the Most High King, adopted in son and daughter. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are beloved. You are holy and blameless. And you are all of those things, not by anything you've done, because of who he is and what he has done for you in and through Jesus' completed work on the cross. Saying live true to who you are. Um, scholar says it this way. He says, the biblical writers suggest that all persons will inevitably mourn for their spiritual state. They can wait to mourn until it is too late when God has brought his judgment on earth or they can mourn now, turning sorrowful from their sin so that they will have no occasion to mourn when the Lord returns. Many of you right now, because of the church we're in, you're, you're stuck and you're, you're probably at one or two extremes. 
You're either the one extreme where you just feel so much guilt and shame, you can't even pick your head up off the pillow sometimes. Or some of you, you feel no guilt and shame of your things. You just kind of keep going, well, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, as if his grace was cheap and it didn't cost God immensely. The scholar says it this way. He says, some, of, some who are calloused and careless about your sin need to mourn and weep and exchange your laughter for heartfelt repentance. But others of you who are burdened by your guilt and saddened by your failures need to rejoice with joy, inexpressible, that your sins are forgiven. James is walking this really fine line that, that, that we struggle with the tension of it because it's like, well, it's either this or this. He's saying, no, no, you are this. This will be a reality until I come again. You are going to wrestle. We are going to hear me on this church. We are going to wrestle with our flesh until Jesus comes again and fully completes that which he began in us, which he promised to do so we know it will happen. And then verse 10 he comes back to this spot. And I think this is interesting that he does this. This is kind of my own conjecture in this, but like he says, comes back to this idea of humble yourselves. He says, he says in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think this is really important because again, it's sandwiched between here's all the things you're supposed to do versus seven and 10 on, or here's how you are to operate is as who you are versus seven and 10. But I think it's interesting here because if you think about it, when it comes to repentance, most often what has to happen for us to repent is we have to be willing to step off of some high horse or some high place and acknowledge that what we did was wrong. What we did deserves death, but in Christ, we have freedom. He's saying, no, 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 humble yourself. Like, there's no better person to humble yourself to than God because at the right time, he will exalt you. So even the podium with which you find yourself standing on of self-righteousness right now, humble yourself, get off it because there is no podium like that. God will exalt you in his glory. And that will be at the perfect time. So it's okay. It's okay to say, I messed up. It's okay to acknowledge our brokenness. Man, church, we, we should be the best people at this. If you profess the name of Christ, you should be one of the best people at, at, at repenting because you've already experienced what repenting of your life apart from God means once he, he brings you into his, his fold. He doesn't say, okay, well, here, work yourself up to the higher ranking of Christianity. It doesn't matter who you were, what you've done, or who you are before Christ. In Christ, we are all equal. And he makes us all co-heirs with Christ. Sons and daughters, adopts us in, calls us family. We should be so good at repentance because we've already experienced the, the greatest gift of all, which is salvation in him and our first recognition of humbling ourselves and our pride as he has drawn near to us and drawn us out to him and surrendered to him as Lord and Savior. Be perfect and complete, but not as something you achieve by your merit, as something that God is actively doing in you by his Holy Spirit and will complete in the new heavens and the new earth. That's this tension. You already are. Live true to who you are today, ultimately knowing that you will fail miserably at it, but God's grace is greater, praise Jesus, than all of our failures. But to not acknowledge that, to not confess that, to not repent of that, is to make small that which God did for us in Jesus Christ. It's just not who we are in Him. So when you sin, not if, when, because you will, I will, we all do, humble yourselves. Submit yourselves to the purifying, sanctifying work of God. You draw near to a God who is not any further away from you. 
Draw near to a God who's, who's going to receive you, not with a, oh, okay, Brian, you did it this time. I'll let you, I'll, one more time, I'm going to forgive you. Fine, I, I, well, I said I would have to let you into. No, he's saying, son, you're finally living true to who you are, who I created you to be. Come experience the joy that is, is found by ridding yourself of the things that are, are friendship with this world. That's the posture with these. He's the prodigal son, standing, waiting, running to us. Yes. Some of us, we need to be wretched and weep as a sinner this side of heaven who are still not who we are supposed to be or who he has created us to be and will never be until he comes in the new heavens and earth. But take heart. Because although we mourn and hurt today, we mourn as those with hope. We mourn as those um, knowing that whatever still looks like friendship of this world in us will fully be destroyed in our, bo- in our new bodies in the new kingdom of God. Take heart. You, you won't fight forever. <laughs> I mean, this side of the kingdom you might the new kingdom, new heavens and earth, but you won't fight forever. There will be a day where there will be no more wretched man and woman experience, but only the complete and perfect and mature in Christ. No weeping. No need for repentance. No need to to confess or to acknowledge our pride because we will be fully humble. Because in a word, we'll be like Jesus. Who, although he was Equal to God did not count that as something to be grasped. So live today in light of that. Live today in, in light of who you are. Humble yourselves is, is, is a I'm not my own statement. I've been bought. You and I aren't our own. It's a, it's a I have a new identity. I'm a son and a daughter. I'm a, I'm a royal priest. I'm beloved. I'm God's. I have an inheritance that is mine in the kingdom. That's who you are today. And James's plea is not to, to work up some kind of religious working system that you can then figure out how to, to walk it out. No, he's just saying, just, just continue to turn yourselves to the God who clings so close to you. That, that in spite of all of you, this is the best part, in spite of all the things you do as his child, there's nothing you can do that will take him out or take you out of his grasp. There's nothing you will do that will, that will, that will ruin your um, relationship or your standing with God because it's not held by you, it's held by Him. So what is it for you today? Where do you find yourselves looking too much like the world? The world that you are in, but not meant to be of. So Jesus tells us, He doesn't say take you out of the world. He says, I pray for you while you're in the world. You're just not of the world anymore. What is it for you guys? We all have it. Is it... Is it money, the way you spend it, save it? Is, is, does it make sense to the standards of the world but not to the kingdom of God when it comes to generosity? Where, where in your life? Because here's the thing. I'm confident of this. If you're anything like me, and maybe you're not, maybe I'm on my, on my own this, about every day of your life, you're going to find things that look too much like the world in yourself. Is it at work or in school? Do you just look like everyone else in the ways you interact, work or don't work? speak or treat people. Maybe it's politics. You look too much like a specific political party and not like the one who serves the king of the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe it's your divisiveness or speech or quarreling like James has been talking about. May you turn and repent of your double-mindedness wherever it is for you. 
This isn't James making some plea to work it out, like be in workspace and you have to do this. He's just saying, live in light of who you are. Whatever it is for you. We, we, see, we see in Jesus in the scripture, and this, is, this was really powerful for me when you look at it in the New Testament. When you see the gospels and Jesus going, rarely, like, when do you see Jesus most angry or frustrated? It's never at the sinner that then comes and repents. It's always at the person who holds their self-righteousness and says, I don't need you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that grace is sufficient more than enough. Greater grace than every bit of our friendliness with the world. Romans 7, 24, like I I read it earlier, said this. It said, um, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's where, we, that's where we ended. We're like, oh man, Paul, I feel you. Yeah, wretched man. But that's not where Paul ends. He goes on in verse 25 and says this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And I think I made a slide error. Nope, yep. And then it goes right on here. Perfect. Um, it goes into Romans 8. Doesn't 725, that's us adding that break in. It goes on Romans 8, which I think is so good. Therefore, there is now, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So yeah, we can feel the wretched man, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's not sitting up there going, come on, stop it, repent. No, he's saying, I'm right here. I've given you all that you need in the Holy Spirit to live true to all that I ask of you. And when you live that way, you're living true to who you actually are. And you'll experience a joy and a satisfaction that this world will never offer you. That's what he's asking of us. Repent, submit, draw near, grieve. I'm sure many of you might be grieving right now. I know in my studying over the last few weeks, I've found myself maybe a little too heavy on the wretched man that I am. I, I want to I encourage you with grief. Grief is one of those things that, that we all are really good at. It. A lot of people in here are really good at hiding it. You know, we don't feel grief. We're men. Don't cry. That's not true for me. You know that. But a lot of us are afraid of it. Instead of grief, we get angry. Or instead of experiencing, allowing ourselves to experience grief, we, we, we try to talk ourselves out of it because how dare we be sad? We got to have joy. Got the joy of the Lord. Right? But, but grief can be used in a really powerful way. And I want to caution you on this because, because grief is, is never, when, when, when God's using it, it's never meant to draw you away from him. It's meant to draw you towards him. And so, so if, you, if you find yourself in the moment today where you, you feel grief over your sinfulness, like, okay, good. But don't sit there because Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that, you, that the letter grieved you. Though only for a while. So okay. So even though I grieve that this, made, this was really hard for you, and I don't grieve it because I, I know it needs to, but I still regret it. Okay, so you can see the tension, right? Like, ah, what do I do with this? He goes on and says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And he goes on and says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life. It leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. I should just read it so you guys can see it. I want to just caution you that the, the grief you might be feeling, is it might, be a, it might be a little prick of the Holy Spirit in your conscience. 
And it's not to drive you away from the cross. It's to draw you near to him. If, if your grief is causing you to run, then that's not, that's not God. That's the enemy lying to you, telling you to believe lies. Like if you, if you let this out, oh man, you'll nev- God will never forgive you. People will never forgive you. Like how, you just need to carry this to the grave when you were never meant to carry any of it. In fact, God has already forgiven you of it in Christ. It is finished, not partially finished, done. So if you're getting, if you're getting poked a little bit and you're, you're experiencing this and the and this Holy Spirit is, is, is nudging you, I would encourage you to lean into that. All right, God, like, wh- how do I need to repent of this before you? How do I, how do I submit myself knowing that I'm already, I'm already whole, I'm already complete, I'm already, I, I, need, I need maturing, but I'm already whole in you. I'm already pure and holy and blameless. But, but I don't want myself, that which is what, is, what I, I am, to look any different than that. And so this, this wretched man looks different than that. And I want, I continually want to die to that so I can continue to wear the new self that I am. Then I would encourage you to, to let it turn into repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Don't run from it. Look, God is not going to ask anything of you that he doesn't give you the sufficient grace to accomplish. So if you're scared, he, he will be there with you. Church will be there with you. Grace is greater than the allure of the world. A call to repentance as sons and daughters who aren't there yet, but are moving towards it by the grace and power of God. Look, the grace we even have is a gift from him. (laughs) He gives us the grace to do it. Our ability to submit to him in humility through continual repentance is a practice that we should be so used to doing as we'll need to do it and practice it daily probably until he comes again. After uh, this song in a second here, we're going to take communion. And I wanted to, instead of talking about communion in a second, I want to kind of roll right into it because it's a symbolism of something very beautiful, of what Jesus has done for us through the completed work of the cross. It's the idea of us, of drinking of, of the, the wine that represents his blood and, and the eating of the bread that represents his, his body. And it's in doing so, we're proclaiming his death and burial until he comes again. So we're saying, I'm living true to that. This is, this is why I am whole is because of what Jesus has done. So, so I would encourage you, for those of you that follow Jesus, to, to please hear me on this. Draw near. Don't, don't abstain from it. Draw near. Just, just come to the Lord in repentance, and, and you can just say all of it to him. And it's not like he's going to be like, oh, wait, slow down. i got to write this down. I, I didn't know all these things. And no, just, just, just repent of it. Just clear, clear of it. Clear come to it, because he's already forgiven you it in the cross. And that's what this communion is. It's doing that. So we get to we drink fully satisfied, satisfied knowing that all of your sins have been fully dealt with in the completed work of the cross. So come to the table. Take your time to repent. That's great. Turn from it. Acknowledge those things that, that maybe you began too, too close to a friendship on the schoolyard with the world and you need to kind of have your, your father help you recognize that that's not a good friend. You know, like you got to help that out. Like that's fine. But don't wait. Draw near to our holy God who despite our friendship with the world draws us near to himself in the completed work of Jesus Christ. I was talking with Aaron after first service. He said, isn't it interesting how in the, in the old covenant we see that every time an unclean person comes around a clean person, the, the clean person's made unclean and impure. But in the new covenant, that's reversed. All the unclean people that experience the cleanness of, the, of God become pure and made whole. So, so let's walk in that. He said it better than that. You can ask him afterwards. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to not, not take part of the symbolism of a faith that you do not have yet. 
But instead, I would encourage you to to humble yourself, to acknowledge you can't do it. Nothing will ever satisfy you except Jesus. Surrender your life to him, drawing you near. Humble yourselves and fall on the king who joyfully takes your sins and makes them no more and adopts you in as a son or daughter. That would be my encouragement for you. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word and your work. God, I know um, it is such a fine line in my life where I find myself wanting to try and um, earn that which cannot be earned um, or where I want to try and muster up this enough strength or I look at other people in my life and I'm like, man, I wish, wish I had their strength so I could walk out faith like that. Um, God, I just, I just pray that you'd remind me that I am um, fully loved and, and there is nothing I will do or not do that changes that standing with you. Um, it has been finished and completed in the cross. And so as we, as your children come in repentance towards you, may we walk with the joy of knowing that that has already been forgiven. May we walk with, with the joy of knowing that, um, that we're living true to who you have made us to be. Um, and that um, right now we're just getting a little taste of what it's going to look like in your kingdom when we no longer have to worry about that stuff. So God, I pray that we would be a people that are grieved by the ways with which we sin against our Holy Father. Like grieved, like deeply grieved. But God, I pray that we'd be a people that are just full of joy knowing that, that, that you as our Father does not hold us in condemnation or shame, but draws us near in love. That you, you see us clothed in righteousness because of what Jesus has done. And when we sin, even when we delay in our repentance, God, we know that your word tells us that Jesus is right now interceding on our behalf in the throne room of God, saying, I paid for that, I paid for that, I covered that, I covered that. So Father, would you just give us the desire, the, the, the hope, the strength, the ability to walk out that which we have already become in you. And in doing so, God, would we not be a person that's looked at as pious or religious, but um, they would just see Jesus. It's in his wonderful and glorious and magnificent name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.